Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today Rena Van Alst from Strata Central. How are you doing, Rena? Good, Amanda. How are you? I'm doing well. I am busy, busy. We are almost halfway through 2021, if you can believe it. That is our life in Strata. Speaking of, hit me with your challenge for this week, Rena. Well, as you know, Amanda, like being an owner in a Strata property yourself, many owners want to undertake renovations at various times. And as we all know, the process can be quite sort of arduous in terms of First of all, the owners having to tell us what they want to do. We then have to advise them in relation to the bylaws and the act and what approvals are necessary. So we've had a number of apartments that actually require a CDC under the particular local government act that they're situated at. And many owners don't seem to understand that, you know, it's not obviously something that we want to put them to the expense to, but it's a requirement if they're taking out a wall in some jurisdictions that they have to actually have a CDC, which is a compliant development certificate. And with that process, a lot of documentation is required. Normally an architect is usually involved and they need the APSS and they need various plans and bits and pieces. But what many owners have been asking me to do, they just give me the CDC and they say, can you sign it and put the seal on? And I say, no, I actually need the whole document package that's going to be submitted to council because otherwise... I don't know what you're affixing to that and what I'm actually signing. And many people actually get quite sort of, not irate, but sort of thinking, oh, no, like now I've got to get my architect to put it all together. And some architects don't even realise that I need to see the whole document. So even in some cases, I'm having problems with the architect trying to convince them that the owner's consent of the land is actually the owner's corporation. It's not the particular owner. So basically, as strata managing agents, we are sort of at times really the meat in the sandwich. We don't want to... Uh, make things more difficult for people trying to undertake renovations. And we know there are timelines for people in terms of occupancy, builders, tenants, etc. But unfortunately, we're at the mercy of, of the legislation, both government legislation, strata legislation. And um, previously, in my old company, we actually had a situation where a DA was signed by a strata managing agent and the owner then submitted a, t- a totally different document. And plans as to what had been approved. So we need to make sure as managing agents that whatever we're signing is actually what's being submitted to council as a total bundle of documents. Mm. Yes. So that is in our Environmental Planning and Assessment Act that when there is going to be development on land, then the development application has to be signed by the landowner. And as you say, Rena, where common property is affected, the landowner is indeed the owner's corporation and they need to know what they are signing just having the form is not good enough. I had an experience just within the last couple of days, actually, where I gave some advice to a building, a blank development application form, and asked to sign and affix the seal to it. And the building sensibly came to me and sought advice. The form is not sufficient to sign, even though the signing of the form itself is just allowing the development application to be submitted. It's not necessarily giving consent to the works themselves. There are a whole lot of other documents that are submitted together with the development application. And unless you have seen those and are aware of what they are, then you shouldn't be 
facilitating that lodgement. Yeah, well, I mean, they are sentimental, but they're sent in dribs and drabs. So sometimes you get like oh. a plan and then you get the AFIS says, and I said, no, no, I actually need the whole document bundle because that's what you're submitting and I need to see exactly what you're submitting. I think sometimes even the architects have a bit of difficulty understanding this whole concept that you can't just give me, you know, two pages and, and then submit something behind that that I'm not really necessarily aware that that is everything that's being put in because sometimes people can put in other things and it's happened in the past where you know an applicant as I said previously had put a submission in for some amendments and included some balcony work and then later on they changed that when the DA was signed so Mm. what they submitted in terms of those plans was different but if if an agent is just is just signing the cover page or just the application form then, then they really are putting themselves in a bit of a situation where in the future, I mean, it's very rare that that would happen, but you just don't know. And when you're putting the seal on, all that responsibility is falling on the agent's um, shoulders. Mm. Good reminders there for our strata managers and for our committees who are considering applications for approval of renovation works where there is council involvement. Thank you for sharing that one, Rena. My challenge for this week, I have a question from a member inside our online community and it was an excellent question that I promised to bring over to the podcast and get your thoughts as well, Rena. It's a question about engaging lawyers, owners, corporations, engaging lawyers, and I've been asked to share some best practices when it comes to the engagement of lawyers on the part of owners' corporations and the management of the communications that flow between lawyer, strata manager, committee members. And I suggested that I have a chat with you about this, Rena, because I know as a very experienced strata manager, you have dealt with many, many legal matters in your time and no doubt have some tips and some traps to share when it comes to working with lawyers. First up, engaging the lawyer. How do we make that process as smooth and as clear as possible? How do we make sure that the lawyer has the right instructions, the scope of work is clear, and that everybody is on the same page? This can be complicated, can't it, Rena? when we're dealing with committees, everybody has a particular point of view. Do you have a best practice when it comes to the engagement of lawyers on the part of your owner's corporations? Yeah, well, first, Amanda, the important thing is to ensure that whichever lawyer is selected, and I'll go into that shortly, is that basically you have prepared a very adequate brief to the lawyer because the problem is that in our minds as agents and and committee members, we all know what's happening and we know the history of the matter, but very rarely is that really articulated in a way that a lawyer who knows nothing about the case can perhaps give a um, proper cost disclosure and I'm aware from, you know, being married to a lawyer that one of the complaints that he had about doing work for Australian management was that they would just give you like a couple of lines in terms of an email asking for a cost disclosure, giving you just a very vague description of the actual matter and then expecting you to give a cost agreement. So that's, I think, where a lot of lawyers perhaps and a lot of committees have clashed in terms of the expectations and and the cost disclosure not really um, marrying up. So I think it's important for a strata managing agent, in a sense, to write a brief. And even though it may, it may take some time, and I just did one on the weekend, actually, for a matter that we're dealing with in a strata scheme, which I can talk about it as another challenge at another time, that it took me quite some time to articulate the history, to go through what's happened, to give them some documents in terms of, you know, bylaws and, and minutes and et cetera, et cetera. So at least then when the lawyer is providing a free proposal 
or a cost disclosure, they actually have all the information there in order to provide a more accurate cost assessment. The second mm. thing um, that I know in terms of selecting a lawyer is basically making sure that the lawyer sort of fits in in terms of their, not just their intellect, obviously, but just even their approach, because some committees like to have someone who's, you know, quite aggressive or, you know, and kung-ho and, you know, they want someone really to get in there. And then other people perhaps prefer a more, you know, not a subtle approach, but a different type of personality. In a sense, it's just like in any business when you're trying to match a client to your staff, trying to look at the nuances there in terms of, you know, would that committee work well with that particular lawyer or not? So that's the second consideration. Then obviously then using that criteria and then obviously issuing a brief to a lawyer to get a few costs disclosures. And when those cost disclosures come back in, I'm not sure if you have a rule, Rena, about having more than one or having at least three. And then what are your next steps once the cost disclosures come in? Yeah. So normally we try at least to have two because I think you need to have some sort of comparison. And I think also anything normally with legal matters, not just a matter of expense, it's a matter of expertise and experience. So we're not always just looking at, at the dollars, but in a sense, sometimes some committees would like to speak to the lawyer, you know, just to discuss their cost disclosure and, and then get a feel. So sometimes it's always about price. So we, we get at least two, you know, for more complicated things. For things like, you know, bylaw consolidations, obviously that's not an issue. You know, you're not going to – you can get three quite easily. It's a very rudimentary type of procedural task that you're asking a lawyer to do. Yeah, so then after once that's we get a few quotes, then we normally will put those quotes on a committee meeting in writing to approve them if they're below the statutory limit, obviously. And normally, in the first instance, most of those cost disclosures will be because until they get to that stage of being over the threshold, then we don't really need owners, corporation, general meeting approval. Now, Rena, I find that when acting for owners' corporations, something that's really helpful to do straight up is to make sure the committee, if your cost agreement is going to be approved by the committee or the owners' corporation, if it's going to general meeting, also is armed with a motion that delegates authority to particular committee members, maybe two or three committee members, uh, if not only one, if it's a small committee, or even authority to the strata manager to instruct the lawyers and to make decisions in relation to the legal matter. This is particularly important when you're in the middle of litigation or you're going to be before the tribunal or the courts and decisions have to be made quickly, that somebody has authority given to them by a meeting resolution to instruct lawyers and make decisions. And I see cases come undone sometimes when this authority is not given early on and there is a decision that has to be made quickly about a settlement offer, for example, or the other side is a little bit clever and questions who has authority to instruct mm. the lawyers. Why is the secretary making these decisions? Are these decisions in the best interests of the owners corporation? If they're not, then why does this person insist that they are continuing down this path? Really important to have that authority motion early on and if the lawyer isn't giving you one, then asking for one to be provided so you can put it on the agenda. Is that something you've seen before, Rena, and um, been helped by? Not very often because normally, you know, depending on the committees, like we, if we're the person that is the intermediary between us and the lawyer, because if you'd say you have a large committee, I mean, you can't have everyone sort of emailing. So what we try and do is, as the intermediary between the lawyer and, and the committee, we will email and say, you know, please see below um, requests from the 
lawyer, can you all, you know, confirm our return email if you're happy with the settlement offer? Or, And then sometimes I think in more complicated litigation amendments you've said, or if there's a settlement offer, then we do try and if the lawyer ha- needs someone that they need to confer with um, more quickly because obviously as agents, you know, we get so many emails a day and therefore sometimes, you know, with urgent matters, you, you know, the lawyer needs to be able to ring someone or email someone directly. So we have done that also and some schemes actually we prefer that we're just copied in and the lawyer writes to everybody depending on, on the um, particular matter so that at least responses can be provided in a more timely manner back to the lawyer so that, you know, there's not, they're not waiting for me to then forward the email, then they then all talk and then if they all then just respond and copy us in, then the lawyer mm. can say directly that they have instructions, especially like I think in defect matters we've had a few of those where it's just quicker I think in defects where, you know, you just say to the lawyer, yes, that's fine, you know, engage the joint expert or things like mm. that where they're not, doesn't require, you know, that much sort of back and forth. It's just more, yes, are you happy with this person or are you happy with this? Going? We've already agreed down a path in terms of how the matter is being approached. It's just more confirming the mechanics of that approach. Mm. I do think that where you have a large committee and as a lawyer acting for the owner's corporation, receiving instructions from that entire committee can be difficult, Mm. not just difficult, but turn out to be expensive. Because Mm. if I'm getting input from six or seven people and I'm then having to explain to four or five of those people why I don't think what they're suggesting is in the best interest of the owners corporation, I mean, costs just rack up really, really quickly. So I think you're right. It does depend on the the type of matter Mm. that it is. And the size of the committee and how quickly the matter has to proceed. But we do have examples of cases in our tribunal and in our courts where there have been challenges to decisions that have been made during litigation, including decisions to settle, and settlements have come undone because there hasn't been proper authority for a particular committee member or the committee full stop to sign a settlement agreement. Um, So I do think that's something that can be easily dealt with at the beginning of a case uh, too often gets forgotten and by the time you are at the end of the litigation it can be hard to convene a meeting and get that yeah. formalized yeah i agree because i remember many years ago um would have been about 15 years ago i had a defects matter that was settling and again um it was you know one of the big sort of building companies who now no longer exist actually and um one of their issues was yeah on show us the authority that you have to actually, in this case, even submit the whole proceedings, and then then they mm. then made that even further in terms of yeah, who who's got the authority to settle them at? So you're absolutely right, mm. especially in larger cases where it does require immediate sort of advice, and you can't just go back and forth and back and forth with, with various people. I think also I find that one of my schemes I've just taken over, they had a, cons- a sort of a, an architect who you know does beautiful homes in terms of you know design and, and paint and color. And she said that she doesn't like working. It's only a small scheme, but she doesn't like working with body corporates, she calls them, because you know, there's so many people that are in charge mm. you what they want. Which I'm sure oh, yeah. you probably come across that too. Yeah, there's a lot of cooks, I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> and I do have a policy, and strata managers who may have approached me sometime in the last year or so, and committee members, I do have a policy that if an owner's corporation is coming to me for a quote, I don't tender for work. So I do ask whether my quote is being put up against others at a general meeting. And I only work with owners corporations that come to me specifically wanting to work with me, not just to 
to quote shop or compare my cost agreement to others because I can tell you it's not on, it's not high on my list of desirable clients, commit large committees and owners corporations. It is much easier to communicate with just the one client, the one lot owner client. And I, mm. I do mostly lot owner work these days for all of those reasons. That's not to say I don't have my particular favourite buildings out there <laughs> who I do repeat work for. But things to bear in mind. Uh, one question that this uh, member in our forum was also asking was about costs and whether as a strata manager, Rena, you have any tips for reviewing bills that lawyers may issue or being conscious of costs in order to save money for the owners corporation. Have you got any tips there that you're able to share? Yeah, well, I think one of them, Amanda, is obviously using us as as the filter between the committee and the lawyer. Because as you said before, if you're getting emails from six people and having to try and decipher what the instruction is and then go back and forth, that is in a sense our what we do to try and save money by getting all the feedback, condensing it, and then you know asking the, the few points that you know which are important that everyone by majority has agreed. Because again, you can't raise every single thing that everyone wants, especially in larger committees. And the second thing also, I, mean, I do look at the bills and. I remember years ago there was a lawyer who um quite prominent doing a lot of work for strata companies and I remember I just started and I was looking at the bill and they had obviously charged for the time on the phone with me, which of course that's fine. I mean obviously I'm the client representing the owners corporation. And I recall seeing, oh that doesn't sound right. Like so I ended up because I also bill for my time, I ended up going back to my my records and basically all those times had been doubled. So I had to go back to the uh, lawyer. Oh so it was more so a half hour call was built was like an, an hour, hour call yeah everything was like everything like was longer than because i obviously keep meticulous records myself so mm-hmm. um yes yeah, so i had to go back and say and then of course that then sort of put a whole um mm. damner on the whole bill because i think well, what else are you sort of exaggerating if, if i picked up this particular issue in terms of my time spent with the lawyer then what else in terms of other work that they've billed out or other times that they've noted is actually inaccurate. So I think just having mm. a cursory look at the bill is really important as an agent and, you know, making sure that, you know, because I mean, as an, when you work with a number of lawyers and you you sort of tend to know, you know, the costs and generally what they are in terms of, you know, like if it's a conference, well, you know, if it's a conference or an hour, it's an hour. It's, it's quite simple. But And also mm. I think sometimes things take longer than what people think it might take. I mean, as a lawyer and as, even as managing agents, when we're – even writing minutes, it takes us a lot longer than what people think. And they think, oh, this, you've got four pages. But by the time you look at your notes and you sort of condense it and as a lawyer, man, obviously you're looking at cases and you're trying to, you know, look at the yeah. law and people think, oh, that letter took an hour, but it's only two pages, but it's not about typing the letter up. It's all the thinking that goes behind it. Yeah, <laughs> so that, very yeah. true. Yeah. And in relation to the the bills, uh, almost all lawyers, I think these days, unless you have quoted for a fixed fee, will be issuing itemized bills. And I do think that clients often don't look at what's set out in the itemization. I know employing lawyers myself as uh, the secretary of my committee, I'm the one who looks at the bill and checks it. And I have in the past picked up, doubled up charges, typos, mistakes, entries that I think are incorrect or are there due to some kind of oversight that don't match my own records. Having a close look and picking this up and going back to the lawyer and my experience, maybe this is because I'm a lawyer talking to a lawyer, but my experience have been that the lawyers say, absolutely, Amanda, we're sorry. And here's the thousand dollars off the bill or whatever it is. 
if I didn't look at that bill, I wouldn't have saved that money for the building. So strata managers do do that. You'll have happy, happy clients if you're able to make those easy savings for them. Yeah, I agree, Amanda. I think that just having a closer look at, I mean, I know even looking at managing other managing agents when we took, we take over um, schemes and we get their schedule B, which is for those listening, it's the time that we bill out, which is outside of the fixed fee that we've quoted to manage a building. Sometimes I think, oh my God, I mean, I can see that it can't take 15 minutes to do that, but you can see sort of sometimes there are, some agents now have like what they call a minimum fee, a minimum time. So their time is, instead of giving you an hourly rate in, in the agreement, which I've noticed, they give you like per 15 minutes. So I think I find it very non-transparent because to me, an hourly mm. rate should be an hourly rate. If you say, if you go per 15 minutes, then people have to then times it by four. And most people don't really do that calculation until it's too late. But yep. then they end up just charging in 15-minute increments. So if something would take mm. five minutes, I think that's sort of, you know. But anyway, I suppose you've got to look at the fine print when you're looking at a cost agreement or looking at an agency agreement. They're both the same sort of thing in terms of anything that's built out on a cost basis needs to be properly um, assessed. Mm. So much more that we could talk about in there. And I know we haven't covered everything that our member was raising there in the forum. A topic perhaps to come back to in an episode all of itself. I'd be happy to hear from any listeners out there of specific questions they have about working with lawyers, engaging lawyers in the strata context. And both Rena and I are well-placed, I think, to assist yeah. with those from our respective positions as strata manager and strata lawyer. Rena, do you have a win to share with us this week? Yes, a very quick one, Amanda. Um, in one of our schemes, we had engaged an engineer because we wanted there was a lot of um, dampness and, and mould in a particular apartment. And unfortunately, initially, the committee said, oh, no, just get quotes to fix it. And as I had predicted and realised, you know, you get a quote from various builders telling you to do various things at various costs. So I said, can we just, you know, engage an engineer? I got a quote. And he went in there and basically said that, um, the main issue he believed was it was lack of ventilation in the apartment. And, of course, the owners did not agree with that, got quite angry. The daughter rang the engineer basically saying that, you know, he had no, like he was wrong, etc. that her parents had been overseas and that never happened before. And anyway, so what happened, the engineer just told her, please don't ring me, um, direct all your comments back to the strata managing agent. So he didn't engage with her apart from confirming his advice, but it was good that he directed her back to us because in a sense you can't have individual owners just ringing up people. Again, you were alluding to previously, Amanda, about the cost blowout that would happen if every owner could then, you know, ring the engineer or ring the lawyer themselves, what, what would happen in that case. And secondly, it was good that the engineer sort of directed the daughter's owner actually back to us and said no, um, Anything you have to say about my report should come through your managing agent and don't ring me. And um, I thought that was fantastic. I thought that's good because at least then people know there's a demarcation. And owners call, you're not an individual client for an engineer. It's the owner's corporation that's engaging you. Even if you don't agree, that's fine. I'm not saying people can't disagree with advice. That happens quite often. It's more about how you proceed in terms of communicating that disagreement. Mm. And that does cause problems at times, doesn't it? Even with uh, contractors attending on lot owners at their properties to fix what is a common property problem, the contractor is engaged by the owner's corporation and the lot owner is directing the contractor. It might be a plumber, it might be an electrician, this is, this is not what I want, this is what I want. And frustrating when the contractor then complies with that and comes back to the strata manager or the committee to say, oh, I did A, B and C. And the manager has to explain, well, no, you're only instructed to do A and we're all in a mess. So, yeah. so oh, refreshing. Yeah, 
Is that girl in the converse of that? I'm never coming back to this building again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I have experienced a couple of those myself as well. Yes. Uh, refreshing that you have a professional there who understands who their client is, the scope yeah. of their engagement and where their instructions are coming from. So yeah, a really good one to raise off the back of our discussion about lawyers as well. Yeah. Thank you. I am going to wrap up by sharing my win for this week. And I am very pleased to report that one of the uh, number of pet cases that I have on my books at the moment has been resolved. And it has been resolved prior to the first appearance before the tribunal, which is always a a good thing, cost-saving for both sides. This was a case in a building that had a blanket ban on pets, very similar to the ban that we saw invalidated in the Cooper case before our Court of Appeal last year. Lot owners wanting to keep a dog at their property came to me seeking advice and I started communications last year with the Owners Corporation, explaining to them how our law in New South Wales has changed and why it is that their blanket ban is invalid. Unfortunately, at that time, the committee was insistent that they would continue to enforce their ban and even sent notices to comply and threatened fines against my clients for continuing to have their dog on the premises. Ultimately, when my letters fell on deaf ears, we applied for mediation and that occurred a few months ago. The committee wasn't represented by a lawyer at the mediation and despite our attempts to once again explain the legal position, the committee wasn't willing to come to any compromise in the mediation or accept that their bylaw was invalid and we proceeded to lodge our tribunal application after the mediation. Now, what changed? Well, the committee sensibly went and got some advice from a strata lawyer and we now have a proposed new bylaw going before a general meeting which will amend the blanket ban to an application process. Pets will be permitted on application and no unreasonable refusal allowed. So a very happy outcome there for my clients, perhaps a little bit bittersweet because, yes, I have been working for them for more than a year, Mm. incurring legal fees, sending my bills, and they have uh, been committed to their cause. And I know they do wish that the Owners Corporation had sought that formal advice a little bit earlier, but perhaps we can say all's well, that ends well. Yeah, I agree with Amanda. It's unfortunate that it took the committee having to engage a lawyer when there was so much publicity about this Cooper case that you're referring to in, in the media and legislation and various, you know, legal emails sent out by various legal firms in terms of case updates, that this actually didn't resonate with this particular committee. And right to the last minute, they continued until... Yeah, the 11th hour, as you say. But anyway, all's well that ends well. So Mm. now your owner has been able to keep their pet without any worries. Yeah. I think sometimes when you are facing uh, an issue in your community and you're sitting on the strata committee, it's important to acknowledge that you may not have enough removal, let's say, from the issue to make objective decisions that are in the best interests of the owners corporation. I know this particular um, committee member who perhaps was most vocal against my client's cause lived in the building uh, and had a particular 
attitude when it came to the keeping of animals. And I think perhaps that may have obscured the ability to act objectively and to see the situation from the legal perspective. So recognising that you may have that bias and for that reason seeking independent or relatively independent from you advice early on is a good decision. Even if you think might think you're right, you might be surprised by what a lawyer has to say or somebody a little more removed from the situation and acting in the best interests of all of the owners has to say. Yeah, I agree with you, Amanda. I think a lot of committee members sometimes, you know, bring a very personal aspect to how they deal with the whole thing. I mean, I had a meeting a few weeks ago and there was a couple of, actually four committee members and even though three of them were saying, yeah, we're happy with this suggestion, this other person saying, I, I, like this is what I want, I want. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking, it's not, you don't own, like a lot of people have this proprietary way of thinking because they may not live in the building and it's just an investment or even if they do live in the building, it's like it's, I mean, they're speaking from a voice as if they own the whole building. And and sometimes in, in life people do have a lot of control in their life in their other aspects, whether it's personal or yes. professional, but then they bring that sort of to the table when it comes to being on a strata committee. And unfortunately, you know, it's like someone said to me um, the other day, like buying in strata is like, you know, it's like the wild, wild west. You never know who the next sheriff's going to be. And the next sheriff's going to be a new committee member. And sometimes yeah. in a sense, you know, in your own home, if you own a house, you know, you can do whatever you want and you don't have to ask anyone. You can let the whole thing fall down around you. When it comes to, to living in, in a strata scheme, there are obviously statutory obligations and you're just one of so many people that are involved in the decision-making process and it's not just all about you. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I do agree with you where people perhaps in their professional life or their past history has been such that they have called the shots. Maybe they're business owners, maybe they sit on boards and they do think, I'll join the committee, I've got skills sitting on committees and I'll be able to direct what happens in this community. Often do get a rude shock uh, and they're the ones that we have to massage perhaps a little bit and get them on board. My way or the highway doesn't really work. <laughs> or strata. It may work for a short time. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your challenges and your wins with me this week, Rena. I have enjoyed that very much. And I will look forward to catching up with you again in a few weeks' time. See you next time, Amanda. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today? today?